The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. Our guest today is Chaitan Baru, who is the Senior Advisor of Data Science Research Initiatives at the University of California, San Diego. Hi, Chaitan. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Sure, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, welcome. And thanks for joining us today. So we'd like to start by having you introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at UCSD and also recently your role at the National Science Foundation. Sure, happy to do that again. Uh, thanks, Kathleen and Ron. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. And thanks for inviting me on this podcast, which I assume is your very first one for 2019. As you mentioned, I'm at, currently at the University of California, San Diego, where I've actually been for the past 22 years, serving in a number of different roles at the San Diego Supercomputer Center. And for the past four years, I was at the National Science Foundation as a senior advisor for data science. I returned to UCSD in September of 2018, and I'm now currently in the role of senior advisor for data science research initiatives here at UCSD, really. About 22 years ago, when I left IBM Silicon Valley to join STSC, my work at that time was really at the intersection of database systems and parallel computing. And I came to SDSC because I saw the big opportunity for employing modern and emerging data technologies to science applications. And I was interested in the sort of intellectual and technical challenges associated with data-intensive science and the interplay between the science needs on one side and what data technologies can bring on the other side. As I said, I held several different roles at SDSC over the years, including Director of Data and Knowledge Systems Division and Director of the Science R&D Division, which was in addition to running my own research group here, which works on advanced data cyber infrastructure for science applications. And as I also said, I was NSF last four years, National Science Foundation, where I had the opportunity to serve as the first senior advisor for data science in the SICE directorate, Computer Science Directorate. And it was a great time to join with the increasing sort of importance and interest in data and data-intensive approaches and technologies. And as I also mentioned, I'm, as of September of 2018, I'm back here at UC San Diego. Great. Well, that's a lot of great experience. I know that our listeners are going to be really enthusiastic because you've been involved not just in the corporate or the academic world, but in all those worlds and, of course, coordinating across other organizations as well. So you've recently come back from a four-year rotation, as you just mentioned, at the National Science Foundation, where you helped with a number of initiatives, including the big data program and the data science-related activities. So can you share with us at a high level some of what you did there and some of what may be interesting to our AI Today podcast listeners? Sure, I'll be happy to do that. So as I mentioned, I went there at a time of great interest in data. At that time, it was big data. And as you all know, and rapidly we've evolved into the world of machine learning and now AI. Back in 2012, the Obama administration had announced the Federal Big Data Initiative. And when I got to NSF in 2014, I was asked to co-chair a federal interagency group on big data, along with NIH, uh, National Institutes of Health, was the other co-chair. And related to that activity, I became engaged in developing the federal big data R&D strategic plan, which was then released in May of 2016 and is available on the web. 
you can search for that, Federal Big Data R&D Plan. At NSF, actually, as you mentioned, I was also responsible for the NSF's own Big Data Research Program. And one of the things I did as part of that particular program was to initiate a partnership between NSF and the big public cloud providers. So initially, that was AWS, Google, and Azure, and later on, IBM joined as well. And while that was initially done as part of the Big Data Program, now NSF is actually looking to expand its partnership with the cloud providers in multiple different ways. So that was one of the new initiatives that I started when I was there. And then in late 2016, early 2017, the director of NSF, Dr. Franz Cordova, wanted to identify some exciting and challenging strategic research directions for investment by NSF. And I was part of a group that helped formulate strategy for what eventually became one of those big ideas called Harnessing the Data Revolution, which really focused on the emerging area of data science. And I later co-chaired a working group on harnessing the data revolution within NSF to help develop the roadmap for our future NSF investments and activities in that particular area. And I was also able to help conceive and launch some new programs as part of that big idea even while I was there. Great. Thank you for that recap. It sounds like you were very busy while you were at the NSF. So I know that, you know, we've been spending a lot of time with Cognolytica on knowledge graphs, and we recently wrote a piece on knowledge graphs and also about, you know, their relationship to putting common sense into artificial intelligence and machine learning. Can you talk to us about some of the efforts that you were working on at the NSF around this idea of the industry knowledge graphs and what you did there? Yes, indeed. This starts actually with our recognition while I was at NSF that in the area of big data, machine learning, and AI, there's a lot of potential for actually good, fruitful interactions between academia, industry, and government. Uh, Academia has powerful research capabilities across the board and is also charged with educating the next generation. Industry has pioneered a lot of new technologies such as cloud computing and technologies in big data and also has access to huge amounts of data themselves. And government also has access to large amounts of valuable data and is very interested in using these data to innovate and improve delivery of services to citizens. So there's sort of a natural connection between these three groups. And as part of working on the federal big data R&D plan that I mentioned earlier, we organized a workshop which was on the topic of the big data strategic initiative back in January of 2015. And that was at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. to explore the opportunities across these three sectors. And you can actually find the workshop information by searching on the web for BDSI, Big Data Strategic Initiative, and Georgetown. Actually, the entire meeting, at least the main sessions, were all videotaped and recording is available. It's a very interesting set of presentations. We invited Dr. Andrew Moore as a speaker to the workshop. He had just returned to Carnegie Mellon University as Dean of Computer Science after spending five years as Vice President of Google in Pittsburgh and starting the Google Pittsburgh Lab, I think. So we were actually very interested in his perspective, which would have kept cutting across industry and academia. Now, one of the things he mentioned in his talk was the key role that knowledge graphs are playing in industry today. They underpin many, if not all, of the high-value services provided by the large internet companies, for example, the search service provided by Google, Alexa, Siri, and Cortana from you know Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft, the shopping catalogs that we all use on Amazon.com, and so on and so forth. 
And it was noted that academia and government could do important complementary work in this area. You know, even though industry is out there investing a lot of money and effort in developing these things, there are still opportunities. For example, more research was needed on specific aspects of knowledge graphs, and academia could also help develop parts of this knowledge graph in domains of science that industry may not be paying much attention to. And government could help in the construction of these knowledge graphs by incorporating knowledge from the government domain and also using this to provide smart services to citizens. So that idea started us down a path. I helped organize a follow-on meeting that was hosted by the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and this was still under the Obama administration. It was a small gathering of about 15 people which met at the Eisenhower Executive Office building next to the White House. The attendees included the Vice President for IBM Watson, Vice President for Amazon Alexa, VP for Microsoft Research, a couple of ex-VPs from Google, Andrew Moore himself being one, and another one was Ramnathan Guha, who initiated the schema.org and RDF and things like that, so he's well-known in that community, as well as representation from academia and federal government agencies, which included NSF, NIH, DOD, NASA, and NIST. The conclusion from the meeting was that we should indeed push forward in this area. So we actually next had an open meeting early 2016 in Sunnyvale, which was hosted by AWS in their offices. There were about 45 people in the room representing around 35 organizations, including folks from all of the major companies, for example, Facebook, Twitter, Yahoo, Google, Microsoft, Wikidata, and so on, and as well as several universities. And then in uh, late 2017, we organized a workshop on this topic of open knowledge network. We were calling that the OKN at the National Library of Medicine in Bethesda, Maryland. The formal report for that workshop, which was approved by the White House OSTP several months ago and sometime last year, is available on the web and can be found by searching for NITRD. We call it NITRD, Open Knowledge Network. And NITRD and ITRD is an interagency coordination program under the White House OSTP, and it stands for Networking and IT R&D Program. The OKN ideas were also present, Open Knowledge Network ideas were also presented in a number of different venues and have received a lot of enthusiasm from academia as well as industry and government. So I think it's an important area for us to sort of continue to push and make progress. Yes, yeah, so I'm really interested in some of these industries. So these are a lot of different industries. Are you looking at, are these industry-specific, industry or domain-specific knowledge graphs, or is this like a structure for building them? Are these You mentioned something about these open network knowledge graphs, so are these going to be shared among pharmaceutical companies and healthcare companies? And I'm just kind of curious as to like the scope for building these and then sharing these among organizations. Yeah, that's actually a very good question, because obviously the companies who are building and using knowledge graphs today are all doing it in their proprietary domain. But one thing that I, you know, anything that we would do in academia would follow more of the sort of open source and open software kind of approach. And government would also be kind of more interested in an open network because, you know, you want to add as much information as you can to a knowledge graph that government might want to use across government. And by the way, it might start at the federal level, but certainly other levels of government might also want to use this for providing services. So there was a lot of discussion in these meetings and the last workshop that I mentioned about how do we balance proprietary versus open one of the research areas that was identified as being key area was this notion of provenance. How do we track where information is coming from? And that's for a couple of reasons. One, 
is for the reason of providing credit to the people who contributed information, which in academia is a very important thing, but also can be important in a commercial setting because you might want to, you know, you can imagine having all sorts of micro transactions where every time a piece of knowledge was used that was contributed by somebody, they actually get something out of it. But also, provenance is also important in order to know if your system, AI system came up in the answer, you want to know, well, why did you say this? You know, where did you get this information from? And provenance is important for that. So I think the discussions that we had were more about what are the sort of, essentially, you can think of it as the API level, right? The interface level. So what are the open interfaces that we could define so different people can easily plug in their knowledge, you know, pieces of knowledge into the system, some of which may actually be proprietary. So you, you can imagine traversing through a knowledge graph and hitting some point where you may need some additional credentials to get into that part of the knowledge graph. So that's sort of one conceptual way of thinking about it. But we were really talking about standards like actually schema.org and things like RDF. So the idea was, can we keep this as simple as possible so that more people can contribute? And then rather than starting from a very sort of a complex first-order logic or any of these really more advanced methods, which actually end up being barriers to entry. So the discussion was more about how do we create an open system? But I think as you alluded, there can be parts of it which may be more proprietary and people may take this. Another way of thinking about this is we want to create something in the open. Now, somebody can take that and incorporate all of their open stuff into their proprietary and run with it, which would be fine. Great. So at the National Science Foundation, I know that, you know, you were there for four years and I'm sure that you were exposed to a number of companies. I know that you mentioned a few in some of the meetings that you had. Can you share some of the cool things that these companies were working on related to artificial intelligence and data science and big data? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, when I was there, I had several interactions with industry, them visiting us, you know, us visiting them. But I would say most, almost all of this was in open forums. So what I would say here is not proprietary or confidential in any way, but just based on some of the discussions we had with these folks. As you know, companies in general are working with big data and machine learning. Those you know, companies working with those kind of things have many cool stories on how machine learning, deep learning has helped in complex tasks and things like image recognition, speech recognition, natural language translation, and so on. And there are also many examples where the predictions from data have helped people with building more efficiency into the system or taking preventive actions and so on. But so rather than sort of these specific kinds of things, if I stand back and look at some sense what we realized was going on as we were having these interactions with the companies, what I found was really sort of the cool stuff is that we felt like in one area where we thought we felt like, at least I felt like I had a glimpse into the future was in the real-time aspects of what was going on. So some of the big companies that we were talking to, I mean, basically data is arriving at such a rate nowadays, regardless almost of which application you're talking about, that everything is moving into more of a real-time processing and analysis. And and if you really think about it, that sort of goes in hand in hand with big data, because when you're generating huge amounts of data, say from events in the real world or just observing things or sensing the real world, observing systems and sensors and so on, that data almost needs to be processed in real time, either because the data contains signals from real-time events that need to be detected and processed and acted upon, or otherwise you might be at the either you're losing an opportunity or you're you know, missing something bad happening and things like that. So there's just an imperative that you have to do real-time processing on the such things, or because if the system doesn't process these at that rate, it'll increasingly fall behind the rate at which data is arriving and, and at some point it just become impossible to do anything because you know you're continuously falling behind. 
Uh, we got a good example and understanding of that kind of thing when we talked to the public cloud providers, for example, who are describing their operations on essentially a planet-wide computing platform. Those platforms are 24 by 7 with literally millions of actions going on at any moment. So if you're doing anything there, like trying to detect an error, schedule something in the system, even creating reports, you know, accounting and reporting from the system or deploying updates, everything becomes a real-time processing event, which was really fascinating to get that kind of insight. And, and it's clear that all of us, and in some sense, they're at the vanguard and the frontier of this. I think we all want applications in so many different areas want to generate and process so much data. I think we're all in more or less heading in that direction. Now, we also heard examples of companies that have already deployed many sensors, you know, for example, sensors on streetlights and data essentially coming from this Internet of Things that are continuously being processed and decisions being made. But one of the coolest projects I heard about was actually from academia. And I want to you know, give that example. This is Professor Tim McKay in the physics department at the University of Michigan. What he noticed was that many freshman students who are entering uh, University of Michigan were having trouble with their very first courses at Michigan. These are all clearly very bright kids who were good enough to get admitted to UM, which is you know, pretty not an easy school to get into. So he started looking at the data and trying to understand what was going on and decided to actually deploy data analytics and a big data approach to look at the various performance and behavioral indicators from students. These would be things like when you give computer accounts on the first day of class, when was it that a student actually first signed on to their account? And the first homework, when did they actually submit their first homework? You know, how much did they score on the first homework and so on? And based on the analysis of all of this, he was able to send early warnings to students to tell them about how they should be managing their course load. You know, sometimes people may be falling behind already because they just took too many courses or they took too many difficult courses or there may be other things going on. So he was giving them advice through their system. They were giving advice about how to manage uh, workload and other aspects uh, of their overall performance, of, of their overall activities to manage the performance in the classroom. And this whole thing proved to be so successful, especially with underrepresented students in the class, that the university established a separate group, which is now called the Digital Innovation Greenhouse. And again, you can search for Digital Innovation Greenhouse at the University of Michigan, basically to generalize this approach to the entire campus, uh, not just to the Physics 101 class. And that group now creates a variety of smart services to help students, now all students on campus, navigate through their curriculum and keep up with the courses and so on. So I think we are all hoping that this is the kind of power that we can unleash with AI so that individuals can be assisted with personalized services and an individual's effort can then be enhanced using these AI techniques. Great. These are some really good use cases. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. So, you know, at your current role at UCSD, you're with the Data Science Research Initiatives folks in the group there. So can you share some of the interesting projects researchers are working on related to data science, which is obviously more broad than AI in general, but is obviously relevant to a lot of our listeners? Yes, that's a good point, by the way, <laughs> So because data science does cover the uh, bigger spectrum. And in my role here at UCSD, I, I do get a sort of cross-campus view of things. First, I would say UCSD in general is a strong research university, and needless to say, there are a lot of 
interesting things going on here with data and sort of broadening data science. As I think I mentioned before, we recently established the Halichioglu Data Science Institute, HDSI, and I'm one of the founding faculty members of that, along with a number of others. If you go to hdsi.ucsd.edu, you'll get information about it. So, you know, UCSD already has strong research groups in the technology areas, for example, database systems. You can go to db.ucsd.edu for finding out about what that group is doing in computer science. There is an AI group, again, AI.ucsd. But there are also a lot of data being generated by research experiments in a variety of other disciplines, not just computer science. Everything from sort of genomics and all the other omics areas to oceanography and so on, because we have a big institute of oceanography here. But analysis of that data is challenging because these data in, in the scientific experiments represent very complex phenomena. And the analysis needs to be not just data-driven, but also needs to be model-based or model-driven. One outstanding example of this kind of data-intensive science, the work done by our Center for Microbiome Innovation, which is headed by Rob Knight, Professor Rob Knight. And their focus is on understanding of microbiomes, which are these constellations of bacteria which are distinct in distinct microbiomes, I guess. And so the constellation of bacteria, virus, and other microorganisms that live within and around humans and other species in the environment. You can get information on some of the details of what they're doing at cmi.ucsd. In a completely different area, we have a Professor Jules Jaffe, who runs the Underwater Imaging Lab, which is looking at analyzing images of plankton in ocean water. And these images are actually taken by a camera that's fixed at the end of the Scripps Pier, which is in La Jolla. So it's just off the coast, there's a camera at the end of the pier looking into the ocean water. And the camera takes images of plankton population in the water eight times per second, 24 hours a day. So there are literally billions of images that have to be processed. And this is clearly a job for you know machine learning. Understanding what's happening to the population and then making predictions on this is very important because plankton are these tiny marine organisms, but they provide much of the air we breathe. They produce half of the oxygen on Earth, while they also help to remove carbon dioxide and so on. So they've been using automated image analysis techniques to basically understand what's happening with plankton populations. And that's a big factor in global climate change as well. And the third example I would give is more in the area of what I would call AI engineering. So just as software engineering helped establish principles and methodologies for development, testing, deployment, and maintenance of software, and created a technical discipline around that, uh, we now see the need for a similar effort around machine learning and AI to establish similar principles and methodologies for so ML and AI systems. So systems which involve, of course, software and data. Because you know, both are part of the system, both are evolving and so on. Because you know, you might be changing the kind of data you're collecting over the lifetime of a project. So Professor Arun Kumar's lab in the computer science department is developing foundations of advanced data analytics to make the process of building and deploying MLAI applications easier and also to make them faster. So that's an example in the engineering side. For one more example, I want to talk about something that I myself have been interested in is the problem of essentially creating the infrastructure for managing the full life cycle of machine learning, deep learning, other data intensive 
Well, systems, as you said, it's not just about the analysis, it's about managing the data in the full life cycle from development, testing, deployment, actually in the case of data also, you know, experiment design and deciding what data to collect and maybe changing what data you're collecting, but also use and reuse of models. You know, so model developed in one scenario, can it be reused by somebody else in a different scenario, maybe with a, uh, with a different data set, but different but similar, and you know, how different can it be and how similar does it need to be and all of these issues. And then when do we update models and when do we create new versions? So there's a whole issue of versioning in these systems. I think we need to understand all of this as part of the infrastructure to support AI ML systems. And what's happening in industry is, you know, people who are doing this in a very serious and regular way in industry are finding out that essentially they're running data experiments, right? Because they're trying so many different things and variations and models with different data and so on. And each run is really an experiment, and they're beginning to lose track themselves. You'll hear all sorts of stories coming from industry about where they are not able to keep track of which model did they actually eventually deploy in the real life and can respect to this notion of provenance and so on. So a group of us in the community organized a very successful half-day workshop on this topic that we call common model infrastructure. Kind of an odd name, but it's basically about infrastructure for models. And this was at the KDD 2018 conference in London back in August of 2018. Many of the talks were from industry, including Google, Twitter, Microsoft, SAS, Allen Institute for AI, and so on. And actually, many of the attendees in the workshop were also from industry, which is sort of reflecting the importance of this whole issue in practice. I mean, I think we need overall better machine learning development environments. Right now, things are a little bit too ad hoc. Reproducibility is becoming an issue and reuse is an issue. So if you go to, again, CMI, which is Common Model Infrastructure, 2018, all one word, .sdsc.edu, you'll find information on that workshop that we ran. This was actually followed up with another half-day workshop on the same topic at the NIPS Expo, which was part of the NIPS Neural Information Processing Conference that happened in Montreal in early December. And that workshop was sponsored by Baidu. And Dr. Lou Kwan was actually one of my colleagues back in NSF days. He's now the head of Big Data R&D group at Baidu, and he was one of the co-organizers of that workshop. And finally, uh, we are planning to repeat this workshop again at uh, KDD 2019. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you for so many, you know, good use cases and how researchers and the projects that they're working on. So this podcast was really informative and you got to share a lot of what you worked on at NSF and also UCSD. So as a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to corporations and beyond? Okay, I mean, you know, now we are beginning to talk about narrow AI and general AI. The current boom, I would say, in AI applications in industry, and also known as smart applications. Now we talk about smart cities and smart manufacturing, and across the board, is based on this explosion of data and on learning patterns from data. And in many cases, we have learned that correlation in these patterns is good enough you know, for us to help do something better or find an opportunity, and so on. So I think what we are seeing right now is actually a culmination of a couple of decades of several trends. One is the availability of cheaper and more powerful hardware, which makes data collection, storage, and analysis relatively cheap. Another is the use of internet and web, especially due to mobile platforms, smartphones, and so on, which are bringing more users to the table and therefore more data. And the third is the proliferation of the variety of new digital services that are being launched, which again bring more users and more data. So I think these trends have combined together and now we have sort of hit the knee in the curve in terms of tremendous increase in the amount of data 
and types of digital data that are being generated on a continuous basis. So I'm currently reading this book called AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee. And his thesis is that China has an edge in the AI race because it's producing more of the raw material within quotes, that's kind of his term, for AI, and namely data. Right? So by his, you know, for him, data is the raw material. And as we said earlier, indeed, a lot of AI today is based on data-intensive machine learning and so on. Because there are many more online services becoming available in China and many more people are using them by mobile platforms, and he claims there are more users in China than U.S. plus EU combined. Therefore, a lot more data is being generated in China, which, according to Lee, helps China gain a lead in the AI. So that's something interesting to keep in mind. Now, while there's no doubt that availability of all this data and more data that's going to come will transform the world in many different ways and all the, I think, cool algorithmic stuff we'll be able to do, I think the challenge now is in managing the scaling up of this whole thing. We can certainly expect the community to come up with, you know, cleverer methods, smarter algorithms, more innovative business models to exploit this whole situation of the data and flood of data and explosion of data. I'm not so concerned about breaking these new frontiers in new methods, new applications, and even new business models. I think those are going to happen. Actually, what I'm more concerned about looking forward is what are the potential inhibitors or detractors from this new world of, of technology utopia we might, that we might want to have. And in particular, in the areas of uh, what I'll call infrastructure, education, and then what I'll refer to as impact. That is the impact of technologies, of all of these sort of AI-enabled technologies on the real lives of real people, uh, which includes the issues of fairness and ethics. So to explain this a little bit, I'll say first that the promise of AI is huge. We need everyone to be an active participant, right? When there's big revolution, big change is happening, every individual organization and our person ought to be able to benefit from these innovations. So every mom and pop store should be able to have a benefit, or every small school or college anywhere should be able to customize personalize and benefit from these technologies. So it should not be a case that there are just a few people who are innovating on behalf of everyone else. We don't want a situation where few so-called AI gurus who are ensconced in a few places dictating to everyone else what's going to happen. Scalable infrastructure should be within everyone's reach, and cloud computing can certainly provide that aspect of it. However, it's not just those kind of services. More importantly, the ability to innovate using AI should be within everyone's reach. To think about that as the infrastructural issue, that leads me to the next issue, which is education. So we need to ensure from primary school onwards that we are preparing citizens to enter this sort of data-driven world of the future. Data literacy, including the ability to distinguish between sort of good and bad data and good and bad analysis, should be essential for every citizen. And I'm actually now working with a community group to organize a workshop on this idea of data literacy, which we are calling data science for all. Then from there, it follows that more relevant education related to data and AI needs to occur in high school and all the way on into undergraduate and beyond, regardless of which undergraduate discipline you're going to be in, right? because this is going to pervade everything. Again, I'm working with another group to organize a workshop to rejuvenate the data science modules in the current AP computer science curriculum for high school kids. 
and we hope to engage industry in this endeavor. About a year or so ago, University of Chicago declared that learning about data science was considered to be part of a liberal education. So we need that type of recognition and vision at all levels of education. Now, finally, AI has enormous potential to you know develop these smart systems that we talked about, but also has a tremendous uh, potential to cause harm. And this issue has already gained recognition in the community, including concerns about you know algorithmic bias, data bias. Uh, leading to bias training of models and so on. Problems of such bias have been studied across a wide range of applications from things like even just web search, that web search could be biased to finance and insurance applications and criminal and social justice applications and issues. And the community has taken notice. So a workshop that was started a few years ago called Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency in Machine Learning, which was abbreviated as FATML, has now become a full-fledged conference called Fat Star. So Star is all the other things, ethics and so on and so forth. In fact, the second Fat Star conference will be held at the end of this month, January 29th and 31st in Atlanta, Georgia. And NSF, I know, is supporting a workshop on this topic of foundations of responsible data science. You know, so how do we understand at a foundational level, what does it mean to be responsible and what kind of mistakes could we make and so on. So this theme of ethics and responsible science is resonating in academia, and I'm very hopeful that a number of innovations will be made in this area to ensure that as we go into this new world of AI, we enter it with our eyes wide open. So I think in all I'd say in conclusion is these are very exciting times we live in and we very much look forward to the things that are going to come and there's much to do. And so thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much. You really appreciated you having you on this podcast. You were very thoughtful. This was some amazing stuff. We just were listening to all the great things you've been working on. Clearly, you're involved in a wide range of things, you know, not just data science and artificial intelligence and the adoption of all this. It sounds like education and all the things that are happening here. So we're definitely going to be hitting on a lot of these topics. It's a great way for us to start our first recording of the year, though, for those who are listening to this, I think it's maybe the third or fourth podcast we've published this year. But to the first one we recorded, so it's a really great way to kick off the year thinking about the future. So I really wanted Chaitan to really thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. We really appreciate you participating here with us. Oh, sure. Thanks a lot. And I really enjoyed uh, doing this with you guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. And listeners, as always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. I know that Chetan referenced a lot of links, so we'll make sure that they're included in the show notes. Thanks for listening today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group. And make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.